Al Anderson Afternoons, the podcast. Joining us now uh, to talk about Mental Illness Awareness Week, Marion Cooper, the Executive Director at Canadian Mental Health Services. Marion, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks a lot for coming on today. I I noticed this uh, today, uh, I guess it began yesterday, or maybe it even started on Sunday, I'm not sure, uh, but I saw this and, and brought it up in the news meeting this morning because um, I, I think it's, uh, listen, we should be aware of mental illness uh, around us and, and in our families and with our friends at all times, but I think it's important to, to point out a week like this. Why is that important? Talk about that. Well, I mean, unfortunately, there's a, a long history of not talking about mental illness. And, um, you know, that has slowly shifted um, over the last, you know, couple of decades. But it's shifted because of campaigns like Mental Illness Awareness Week, which is this month, this week, and, of course, Mental Health Week, which is in May. And these important campaigns are really about trying to bring these topics um, out in the open and uh, ensure that people, you know, learn about mental illness because it is a significant health issue for Canadians, for Manitobans, and um, because there's been so much stigma and misunderstanding and really discrimination that has occurred for for such a long time um, because of misinformation, these campaigns really, I think, bring it home and remind us we've come a long way, but there's still work to do. We still need to be informed about mental illnesses, and that's depression, anxiety disorders, schizophrenia other psychotic illnesses, uh, and the whole range of mental illnesses that impact individuals, our communities, our families. So we don't take anything for granted. We, we know that um, our health is precious. And during this time of a pandemic, now more than ever, um, understanding the impact um, of a, the stress associated with the pandemic and the impact it's having on your mental health, um, now more than ever, mental health is top of mind. And of course, a part of that is understanding mental illness. I would argue, that, and you mentioned we've come a long way. I agree, we have. I would argue that we've come a lot further in educating people than we have in treating uh, mental illness. Am I wrong or right? No, you're right. I mean, I think what we uh, often talk about here at the Canadian Mental Health Association here within the province of Manitoba, but across Canada, we, we still see a lack of parity between physical health and mental health. And we see that lack of parity in terms of um, how our health system is funding, um, you know, and treating physical health issues. And mental health continues to lag behind in terms of, you know, mental health issues, getting the kind of timely treatment that uh, is required to sort of ensure early intervention. So we still have a significant gap. And there is a lack of parity in terms of how our health systems are uh, addressed mental illness and uh, physical health issues. I think some people have a better understanding. I have a family member who's bipolar. I have a, a friend who's progressive schizophrenic. And, and while some people have an understanding because of the people in their lives, others have no idea at all. And I wonder if what we've been through in the last six months with COVID-19 is maybe going to make some of those people realize it's not the same. I'm not saying it's the same but give some people a better understanding 
of just how significant mental illness can be in a person's life. You, you know what I'm getting at? I totally know what you're getting at. I think all of us during this time have felt the stress, the impact of the uncertainty, the the um, this, the impact of feeling isolated and disconnected because of the physical distancing that's had to happen. And probably now more than ever, most of us have a bit of a glimpse in terms of, you know, feeling like our coping strategies and our mental health has been impacted. And so that is also very true for somebody who's experienced a mental illness and um, has, while trying at the same time to, you know, focus on their own recovery um, has now had, you know, an additional stressor added on to that. So we can all say uh, that we maybe have a bit of a a greater appreciation for um, mental health. And uh, it's really easy to take it for granted, right? Feeling good. Um, But when when we're not feeling good, we start to realize, you know, um, mental health isn't something we should just take for granted. It is something that needs to be promoted and protected, just like our, our overall health. Um, it is until you've had a mental health struggle that you realize how integral it is to your overall health and well-being. You already talked about uh, this week being about awareness and uh, and education, and I think that's really important. And, and I think these campaigns, there's many of them, uh, have all really been effective at that. Um, for somebody listening, I like to try and boil it down like this. For somebody listening right now, is there more that we can do? What more can we do? Well, I think we need to all sort of, you know, take a moment and say, what am I doing to take care of my mental health today? Um, You know, if I'm struggling with um, a mental illness or I'm concerned that I might be experiencing some some depression, anxiety, don't don't isolate. Don't keep that to yourself. Reach out for help. If you have a loved one, a coworker, a family member um, who's struggling, don't be afraid to ask them, you know, are they okay? Do they need some support? Be there for one another and advocate and make this an important um, issue for you and your family. And as we get to influence sort of priorities in our community, advocate for mental health, advocate for more funding for good mental health services and access to treatment. You know, one of the things we talk about at the Canadian Mental Health uh, Association is uh, we have a campaign that's called Before Stage 4. You shouldn't have to, have, uh, shouldn't have to wait until things are so bad uh, with your mental health to get help. But often people have to be in deep crisis and acutely ill before they can access services. That wouldn't be acceptable in terms of other health conditions. So Stage 4, we would never expect somebody with a cancer diagnosis to wait till they're at Stage 4 in that illness to get access to the best treatment possible. Let's support early intervention. Let's make sure that this is a priority. You said a really uh, a final question for you here, Marion. You said something really important there. I've talked to a lot of people like you about issues like this, and they all say, don't be afraid to say, is everything okay? Are you all right? Can I give you a hand with anything? And that's hard to do as individuals, you know? We, we, we find it hard to get involved, but it's not getting involved. That's just letting that person know that you're there if they're needed, right? Yeah, let that person know that that you've noticed. I mean, often people just want to be noticed and validated. And that act of asking, are you okay, is such a, a, a gesture of kindness and support. 
and um, makes such a big difference for all of us, uh, especially when you're struggling. So don't be afraid to ask that question. Don't be afraid to ask, are you thinking about uh, hurting yourself? Are you thinking about suicide? When you ask those questions, you're not planting that idea in their head. If they're struggling and someone actually asks that question, there can be tremendous relief at, uh, for the person who is being asked to share because finally it, they're being noticed and finally it might be safe to talk about it. So don't underestimate the power of those caring, kind um, gestures of support. Marion, thank you for the conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for bringing this forward. And just before our next guest here, who is a wedding photographer, you heard uh, the wedding planner in the news there in Tristan's News talking about how COVID-19 has impacted them. I want to play a longer clip here of Andrea Mancini from Soiree Planning, and then we'll chat with our next guest, who's a wedding photographer. Take a listen. We've been postponing and replanning many times over. Um, The first few months were obviously spent just sort of absorbing it and um, trying to guide clients. And as a planner, you know, it's our job to have the answers and be able to guide people in the right direction. And so for us, this has been a real learning curve of nobody has the answers here. Um, And so we're all just sort of learning together. But uh, yeah, those first few months were definitely spent sort of pivoting the new, the new word of 2020. Um, And, uh, and now we sort of replanned, executed some, and now we've canceled starting to replan again. Um, and starting to see 2021 couples uh, start to think about weddings, but definitely thinking about them in a different way. We're not seeing people come and say, you know, I want to have a 200-person wedding. We're having them say, I'm hopeful for 100. Reality is 50. If it's 10, we'll go with it. And here's plan A, here's plan B. And it's generally, you know, plan A is my venue that I've postponed three times. Plan B is in my backyard. Andrea Mancini at Soiree Planning uh, with Jeff Courier here on CGOB earlier today i can't imagine uh trying to plan a wedding uh, during covid19 but there are people trying to do it and then people like uh, andrea and our next guest are affected uh joining us now on the phone curtis moore he's a wedding photographer curtis good afternoon good afternoon thank you for jumping on here for a few minutes i appreciate it so you are a wedding photographer i think photographers maybe dabble in in different areas but you're primarily a wedding photographer yeah primarily weddings for the last 13 years i've pivoted a little bit towards family this year because of you know uh but uh, yep still shooting weddings this year and i'll get into the pivot in a second um uh, because you listen you got to eat right you got to pay your bills i I get that i i understand that um how many weddings would you normally do in the six months since covid19 began and how many have you done you know what i probably would have done about 30 to 35 weddings uh, in that time frame uh i've uh, i think i've done about uh, 12 to 15 um, and those are all adjusted weddings. Uh, I guess the, although this has been tough, uh, the one silver lining for me is uh, I tend to um, be the last one uh, standing out of all the vendors. Uh, I've had 200 people weddings go down to uh, four people, and I'm a witness. And uh, photography is still, uh, no matter what size the, the event is, the story is still important to capture. Sure, and I get that. But your business, even even the fact that you are sort of one of the last vendors standing when people are downsizing a wedding, 
your business has basically been cut in half in the last six months. It has. It's been stretched out and probably cut more than a half. So a lot of business went till next year. Those guys, uh, those great clients of mine who, who moved till next year, they kind of took those dates that would be reserved for new weddings. Uh, so it's a little too soon to tell how much of a loss, but uh, it's definitely uh, an adjustment in, in business, yeah. You know, it, it's kind of cool that we're talking to you today uh, because I was talking to a CBS reporter, Steve Dorsey, earlier about President Trump going back to the White House last night. And he was at the top of the stairs. He took his mask off and a White House photographer came in behind him within two or three feet of him. Now, the photographer had a mask on, uh, right. but that but, you know, the the president's the one with the virus. And so it was sort of backwards or, you know, the president should have yeah. had his mask on. But and then knowing I'm talking to you, a photographer. So when you are taking pictures, whether it's a wedding or family photos or, or whatever, I, I imagine you're taking all the precautions that you need to take. Right. Absolutely. Uh, I've so far I've had uh, great couples that have communicated with me well before weddings. We've uh, kind of had policies um, between each other about people being sick, and uh, they've all been concerned about having smaller weddings um, with, and being as safe as possible. And then, of course, I get to be behind the camera, so I am masked up, protected, uh, cleaning my gear and my hands, uh, as uh, staying away from people as best I can. Um, and uh, yeah, being being safe as safe as possible in these situations. And anybody having fun with, with their wedding pictures and wearing a mask? I can imagine there are some couples out there with a good sense of humor that might have thought that was a great way to mark the occasion in the middle of a pandemic. I don't know. You know what? Yeah, it's grown. Like when this first started, um, people were start people were trying to hide the pandemic. Um, and I, I'm all for telling the story. I think 40, 50 years from now, looking back at these photos, uh, it's an important part of our lives. And uh, why hide it? Uh, now now people are embracing the masks. Uh, they don't think they're silly. Uh, and usually um, there are mask photos uh, um, during during a wedding or a family session. Uh, most, I'd say the, the biggest family Christmas card portrait uh, request is the mask shot. Hmm. And you talked about pivoting to family photos. Um, and you tell me, but I would think that maybe the family photo is even more important now for a lot of families, considering what we've been going through. It has been. Um, that's kind of been my, my marketing uh, angle. It's, it's very obvious, and, and I believe in it um, very much so. And the good thing about photographing weddings for 13 years, uh, over 500 weddings, that's uh, a lot of families out there uh, that have had uh, kids and babies and have grown. I've been in touch with them. So it's been a good rally um, with all with all my past couples and new couples and new families uh, to, especially with this beautiful fall we're having, uh, to really get out there, out in the open, uh, keep my distance, and just capture these families uh, having a great time together. Hey, Curtis, thanks a lot for this and, and all the best, and I'm glad that you've been able to you know salvage some work and, and hopefully uh, things get back to something closer to normal very soon. Well, you too, and thank you very much. Joining us right now, CJOB hockey analyst Leah Hextall. Leah, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Hal. How are we doing, sir? Excellent. I thought of you yesterday as well when I was lucky enough to announce on my show that the Winnipeg Jets broadcast rights are coming back to CJOB. CJOB, the 50,000-watt blowtorch, is going to be the new radio home 
of the Winnipeg Jets, and I'll bet when you signed on to do Hextall on Hockey with us a couple of years ago, you never imagined that you would be on the radio station doing the games. <laughs> that that might be a little bit true, but all I have to say about this is when I heard the announcement yesterday, like so many others in Winnipeg and the province of Manitoba, it just seemed like the Jets were back where they belong. So it's a yeah. very exciting time, and I'm very happy for everyone involved, including yourself and especially Kelly Moore, who uh, has been just such a superstar to me my entire career. And uh, mm. I'm so looking forward to when Puck drops next season. But we got some work to do this week before that happens. Yeah, so uh, help me out here. Now, listen, I, you know, I get excited about the Jets when they're in the playoffs, and I'm going to have to get more interested in the Winnipeg Jets. I'm more a football guy than a hockey guy. So help me out. Why should I care about draft day today and the Jets' first pick at number 10, right? Yes, it's number 10 today in the first round. And the reason that you have to care about the entry draft is because there is no day that is more important to any franchise amongst the 31, soon-to-be 32 teams of Seattle entering the league next season that is more important than the draft. And it becomes even more so, how because we are entering a flat-cap era. And notice I say era, because this pandemic has given a bath to all the NHL, and they are struggling financially with no fans in the stands, and we don't know when that's going to change. So this flat cap of 80-plus is going to remain intact for the next few years. So you need to draft well so that you can develop, so that you can create homegrown products that will stay here within the franchise. And the good news is, is that's what the Winnipeg Jets management is best at. Draft and developing is their strongest skill. I was going to say that because I've heard some of the other analysts on the air today, especially today, um, the Jets have done a good job of that, and they don't go chasing needs, right? They, they sort of go for the best player available. You have to use that philosophy to approach the draft, and I think any general manager in the league would tell you that because the fact is you're not going to get a generational player like a Sidney Crosby or Connor McDavid at number 10. You're going to get a player that's going to need some time to season, so they can't come in and just fix your needs right then. So the Jets will take the best player available. And I know for some, they might float their hair and say, but we need defense. We need help down the middle in a sentiment. But the fact is, is that every general manager is going to take the best player on the board. And when you're drafting within the top 10, you're going to get a special talent. Will there be any hints? You know, there's a, a lot of talk about what's going to happen with Patrick uh, Liney. Will there be any hints on draft day uh, that might uh, indicate what will happen with that uh, key player for the Jets? Oh, buckle up, Hal. You could see him leave. You could see it happen tonight. <laughs> you I think mean, so, eh? You know, listen, the draft is a time where big moves are made, and there's general managers right now, and because of everything going on with the flat cap and players having to scramble, there are franchise-changing players on the market, and it's unprecedented, as has 2020 completely be. But I'm just going to say I, I don't know if it'll happen tonight. I personally don't think it will, but the draft, there will be moves made tonight, so I would definitely be tuning into Sportsnet because it's going to be probably one of the most interesting drafts we've seen in a long time. Are you a betting gal? You said you're, you're leaning against no, it won't happen. Uh, what's the percentage you're putting on it? 
Well, listen, I didn't think Patrick Laine would get traded. I have said from the beginning that in a league where you put the premium on goal scorers, I don't believe the Jets should trade him. I still stand by that. I think it's a mistake. You're talking about giving up 30-plus goals for the next decade. But I will also say this, Hal. You know, we're talking about the draft right now, and I have been a big advocate that the draft age should go up. I think it would help the players and the franchises if we gave these young men more time to develop before they're drafted. And I'll also say about Patrick Laine, I get that he's a talent. I get Nick Wheeler's talent. But I also believe that these players need to spend time in the American League. That is where they learn not only skill, but more importantly, the mental aspects of the game. This is a massive jump to ask an 18-year-old kid to play in the National Hockey League. And I really think that franchises and the game in general need to look at the way we draft and develop a little bit differently with these young men. But that's just my take. Sure. And before I let you go, i got to ask you about what is hockey going to look like going forward? We, we don't really, I mean, I think the bubble approach worked well, all things considered, but we don't really know when or how or, or what the NHL is going to look like going forward, do we? Yeah, you just asked me if I was a betting woman, and the fact is is that I have no idea what to bet on when we're going to start the next season. I do know that from what I've heard, the NHL truly wants January 1st to be their starting date. That's usually when the Winter Classic is. We're not going to waste time on a Winter Classic, especially when you can't put fans in the stands. But January 1st is a monumental day. It's a big day in the NHL, and I think that's when we're going to see next season return. But this is a tough task and it won't be a bubble situation i do think though that you might see games played perhaps in series i think limiting travel especially across the border may be something that they're looking at so perhaps you play two three games at one time maybe you play a season series that could be a great way to build up some rivalries and could be quite entertaining for fans so the nhl listen full credit the bubble was perfect so let's wait and see what they come up with because they've done pretty well so far Hey, uh, Leah, thanks a lot for doing this, and uh, I look forward to hearing a lot more of you on CJOB, the radio home of the Winnipeg Jets. I appreciate you, Hal. Have a good one. Rob Warren joins us now, marketing professor, UND. Uh, We're going to get Rob on in just a second, and we have winning, by the way, winning uh, coming up here. In the final hour of the show, between now and 4 o'clock, I've actually had two prizes. We may bunch them together, but we'll see. Or maybe we'll give you the pick. You get to pick the prize. You can pick between a large, two-topping Santa Lucia pizza or passes to go see Planet of the Humans live virtual events. So stand by for winning. All right, Rob Warren is with us now, marketing professor, UND. Rob, good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you? Great. Thanks a lot for jumping on here. I appreciate it. So we found out yesterday that uh, Amazon is putting a a delivery facility near our airport, and and that's great. Uh, It's a lower-level facility. But, hey, uh, as the Winnipeg Airports Authority said here on our air yesterday, it could be the start of a a bigger thing. We'll we'll wait and see. Let's start there. I'll get your reaction uh, to that. And I guess in the middle of a pandemic, and you you know Winnipeg well, how how do we attract more Amazons to do business here? Well, I think this is a first big step for the simple reason that it brings Winnipeg into the same realm as places like Toronto or Vancouver, because now the delivery will be much easier into Winnipeg than it was previously by having the facility. 
Now, what we have to prove in Winnipeg to expand out on it is that there's the volume, because all of this is driven by the volume of packages that can go through. Bigger the volume, the more they'll build. Yeah, and and that's uh, somebody made that point earlier today. I was chatting with somebody, and and they said, why why are we not a bigger hub here in Winnipeg? It kind of makes sense. We're in the middle of the country, sort of the middle of North America. But you say that may end up being the case, or at least closer to that. But we got to prove ourselves first, eh? Yeah, if you take a look at where Amazon is building their distribution centers, it tends to be in areas that have large populations and the reason they're doing that is in order to compete effectively against walmart who's their big nemesis in retail they have to come up with ways of being able to deliver into large markets as if they were a brick and mortar location themselves so in order to get a bit a a bigger distribution hub there has to be more demand in the area and i think this is a good indication that that's now around. See, and that's why I worry about our our future here in Winnipeg. Forget about the pandemic, and that certainly is a major factor right now. I, I worry that we're not big enough to play a big role uh, like that. We don't have the workforce for a company like Amazon. Um, I, I just worry that we're we're, and we love the fact that we're a small town but a big city. I worry though that we're not big enough to be a big player. Well, if you take a look, I mean, Amazon is really focusing on major metro areas, so places with more than a million in population. And that does that hurts Winnipeg because even if you throw in everything within the, cap, the national or the regional capital area, yeah. you're still only around 850,000. And, and that's just not big enough to warrant a large distribution center that is going to get put up to service Western Canada, let's say. They'd rather be able to service a million-person market with a, with a big center and then also use that center to service the rest of their network. Hey, you're a marketing prof. Help me out with this. Uh, you know, marketing is all about uh, playing to your strengths, putting your strengths out in front, and trying to you know take the eye off the weaknesses. How would you market Winnipeg to companies like Amazon and other potential players who might consider coming here? What have we got? How do we market Winnipeg and Manitoba? So the biggest thing I I, I think Winnipeg's got going for it is that twenty four hour airport. That a lot of these companies that rely on packages. They don't have that access to that kind of airport. Their airports have to shut down in the evening. That gives Winnipeg a huge advantage in maybe serving as a transshipment point or as a location where if your model calls for having a big distribution center off to the side and you've got a lot of your products coming in via air, Winnipeg is well positioned for that. I had Brent Bellamy on. He's uh, an architect in town here, uh, and he's also a, a, 
a columnist uh, talking about urban issues. And uh, it was funny, we sent out a tweet yesterday, and he said, hey, any ideas what to do with the old Bay Building at Portage and Memorial? And there have been really some some cool and interesting, and yes, a few crazy ideas. You you know that building. It's historic. It's a landmark here. What would you do there? Because it, it I, I don't think one tenant can go in and fill that space, right? It would have to be mixed. So the one thing I've said is, if you want to, if you want to attract Amazon, that might be a, a location to look at. It's not the new style distribution center, but you could get into that for relatively low dollars, and it's designed to handle heavy cargo coming in and out. I don't know what it would do to the roads in the area, but that's one thing. Um, I agree with you. There's other than somebody like that, it's going to be really difficult to find one tenant to go in to a floor plate that size. So now what you're having to look at is can we subdivide it easily so that people can move multiple businesses in there or turn it into condos or something like that. And we've been down that road a few times and the, the, the numbers just don't work out for it, that the costs of renovating and, and maintaining that structure don't attract very many people. So it's going to be a, a special kind of developer who comes in and is willing to take the risk and the time it's going to take to recoup that on, on an investment. Rob, thanks a lot for joining us today. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Talk to you again. Rob Warren, Marketing Prof at UND. Hal Anderson Afternoons, the podcast, is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.